Welcome to Beyond the Board, a podcast that explores the themes and real-life inspirations behind tabletop games. I'm Mike. I'm Spencer. He's back! And on today's episode of Beyond the Board, we'll be discussing the themes behind the game Ex Libris. I'm back, Mike. You're back, baby. brought a whole bunch of books with me. Oh, man. Where are you going to put all those books? I don't have any shelves. Oh, well, I've got just the game for you. Oh, perfect. So we're talking about Ex Libris. Ex Libris. (laughs) Yeah. Great segue into that. Perfect. Very smooth. Flawless. I like Ex Libris. Ex Libris, yeah. It's, It's about... Libraries. It is. It's yeah. a fantasy library, which makes it a little bit more exciting. Because when I first tried to pitch this to somebody and say, "Oh yeah, you're you're building bookshelves and you're building a library," they looked at me like I had just like there were you know I had grown a third ear out of my forehead. Like, what are you talking about? This sounds like a nightmare of oh, a game. Yeah, but instead you said it's a fantasy based library, game. and instantly people have become much more excited about it. I mean, there's gnomes. There are gnomes. (laughs) Lots of gnomes. So in Ex Libris, you are building a library. There's like a competition going on in town, and you are trying to build the best personal library. So we're competing for a small collection of books that are in various stores or other locations in town, and we want to collect the best books and build the coolest library. Mm Mm-hmm. And with building the coolest library, you have to put everything in alphabetical order. And then there are different bad books that you're not supposed to have in there and uh, just all sorts of things that go along with building your best library. It's it's very much a worker placement slash organization as far as what you have in front of you and when to play what. Yeah, it's, it's cool that it does combine those two things. So you're, you're placing your gnomes around, you're collecting books, but then you have to make the right decisions on when to put the books on your shelves. And so... It's fun. There's the whole concept of like competing over the best books or the most valuable books and then trying to make the other person pick up the banned books. Uh, and it's, it's a fun time. It makes and, you feel like you're using magic in a library. Exactly. Yeah, it's and, everything you want a library to be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we're going to talk about some magical libraries. Yeah. Well, they're magical in how important they were. So... We're going to talk about, since Ex Libris is a game that celebrates libraries or especially acknowledges how difficult it is to build and maintain a library, uh, we thought it would be important to talk about some famous libraries that do a, or did a pretty good job of maintaining themselves. Specifically, we're going to talk about some ancient libraries. Yes, three to be exact. So uh, grab your library card and we'll stop at our first stop in Iraq. That's right. The Library of Ashurbanipal. I butchered that. Help me, Spencer. <laughs> the Library of Ashurbanipal. Thank you. Uh, it is one of the oldest, if not the oldest library in the world, at least on record. It might be the oldest one out there. And it is, to like, like Mike had said, this is in Iraq, uh, specifically northern Mesopotamia, northern Iraq. And it's named after... The king, Ashurbanipal, who was a king of the Neo-Assyrian Empire at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was an empire that actually covered most of the Middle East and parts of the North, Northeast Africa between 900 and 600 BCE. And it definitely was a library, but it wasn't filled with books like you think of a library normally. Instead, there were over 30,000 clay tablets, uh, which had cuneiform on them. Uh, and these tablets ranged from anywhere from one inch big to nine by six inches. And it's funny because whenever I thought about tablets being made mm. back in 
to ancient times. I think I always thought of them like Moses bringing down Ten Commandments, mm. and they were like tabloid size, eleven by seventeen. But I didn't like yeah, nine by six. It's it's a lot easier to hold on to. The have you the cuneiform writing system is really fascinating too because it's just kind of a, a series of ticks and wedges and yeah. things like that and they used it for even simple things like keeping receipts for transactions of things so yeah the 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 tablets that would be used for this sort of stuff really did range in size and practicality and like mike said there were at least over 30,000 of these things in the library and the king was interested in maintaining his power and so actually a lot of these tablets were focused on aspects of either politics, political power, or war, tactics of war, or anything that he could do to ensure that he maintained power. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that a lot of older rulers would also be interested in is helping predict the future, and so the divine. And so some of these tablets were meant to help one predict the future, and they even had tablets with omens on them. I I always I think instantly back to Harry Potter and that mm. uh, the Hall of Prophecies or whatever it's called. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. But there was also stories too. Like uh, for example, in this specific library, the Epic of Gilgamesh was there, which is one of the oldest stories of all time. Yeah. Uh, so one of the oldest libraries has one of the oldest stories. So this was a this was actually a pretty fascinating place when it was around. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the concept of the library is really old, but early libraries didn't look like what we think what we think imagined libraries look like today. Um, they were real practical, and the materials collected were focused on the interests of whoever the collection was. So in this particular library, obviously, what we were talking about, war, politics, divine future, there wasn't a lot of science-y stuff, I guess you could say. Yeah, that wasn't until we started moving into a little bit Later in time, did we see the the need to have the library as a source of like public knowledge and public information? And one of the best examples of that is the Library of Alexandria. Alexandria. So now we're going to jump over to Egypt, and we're going forward in time about 300 years. So we're in the 3rd century BCE now, uh, th about 300 years after Ashurbanipal's library had fallen. And this library was built by Ptolemy. I think we've talked about this before. The library? Yeah, I feel like it feels familiar. It feels really familiar, and we might have mentioned it on our Seven Wonders episode. Oh yeah, I'm, probably. Yeah, that but, would make sense. Yeah, that would make sense. But uh, but yeah, so built by Ptolemy. Yeah, and he did this under sort of the request of Alexander the Great, who wanted this great library to be built, but he died before it was able to be realized. So Ptolemy, who kind of took up the mantle afterwards, decided to finish the job. Mm -hmm. And in this library, moving away from those clay tablets that we were talking about before, most of the books were written on papyrus. I mean, it is Egypt, papyrus, that's where it came from, mm -hmm. not the font from Avatar. In <laughs> uh, papyrus, where we should mention, is quite flammable. And so I think we should address something right away is that the Library of Alexandria burned down and most likely suffered many fires in its day. They gave from natural resources uh, or natural sources and disruptions like earthquakes, as well as enemies coming and burning down the city and the library. Yeah, so that was the advantage of the, the previous library we mentioned, is that the clay tablets can with they can withstand the test of time a little bit better, and they're not quite as flammable. They're they're fragile. You drop a tablet and yeah. it breaks. But the unfortunately, because the library burned down, we actually don't 
really know what the place looked like or the extent to which it had uh, information. How many scrolls were actually in there? Because the estimates are huge. The range goes from anywhere between like 40,000 to 400,000. Well, the average of that, right? (laughs) Right. So it's a little unclear exactly how many scrolls made it into the library. But we do know it was huge and it was a big source of information. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it ranges anywhere. Ptolemy wanted 500,000 in there. It was written. And then Mark Antony apparently gave 200,000. But like you were saying, there's no way of knowing because these are just stories. Mm. Um, But uh, how in the world do you get that many books? It's not like there's a bunch of printing presses busting out a bunch of copies of books all over the place. So what you do is you copy them. So visitors would actually bring their writings to the Library of Alexandria, and have their writings copied over onto papyrus scrolls for record keeping. Yeah, and they had a whole bunch of people that that was their job. They were scribes, and so they would be at the library all the time, and they would just be commissioned to either copy over the texts of people who were visiting the area, or they would pull in texts from major civilizations from around Egypt, especially out of Greece, and get that translated into uh, from Greek over to the sort of Egyptian, I don't know what they were using at the time, but they translated it so that they had access to this stuff at any time. They had their own copy of it. Mm-hmm. And unlike uh, the last library, uh, Ashur Bampal, this library went beyond the record keeping of wars and politics. It, it held many volumes of mathematics and physics and astronomy, and it really was about gathering as much information as possible for everybody to use. Um, it was one of the biggest libraries in the ancient world. Uh, the library showed off how powerful Egypt was, um, and it was a research... I mean, it was also a place for rulers to come and do more research. So not only was it a place for math and science, but it was uh, a tool for a lot of the rulers in the area. Oh, the ruler of... Yeah, I mean, there, yeah. Was, there was a reason that they wanted it, not... They weren't necessarily just looking for the well-being of the the people. It was it looks good if you've got a giant, vo- if you have a volume of all of the great texts of time. That looks that looks pretty good for you. But it did also stand as a as a a good representation of what public knowledge could be if the leaders or the government or whoever did take that concept seriously. And public information is a great thing. And so the idea of spreading this information to people and getting people informed of what's going on is a great idea. It was celebrated in Greece. It was celebrated here. But there was a time when those thoughts were frowned upon or maybe even heretical. So we are going to jump over to Europe now in the dark ages of Europe to set the scene before we jump back to Iraq. Yes. So uh, the next library we're talking about is the House of Wisdom. Uh, which was actually in Baghdad. Uh, As the West went into the Dark Ages, there was a fear of scientific thought. And that fear did not grip the Middle East and Far East to the same extent. And so the House of Wisdom represented an embracing of scientific knowledge. Um, It was built in the 8th century. And some accounts claim that the House of Wisdom also served as an academy. Yeah, it was interesting. There was a movement called the Translation Movement, and the House of Wisdom is oftentimes associated as the, the, the start of this, or at least one of the biggest players in the translation movement, which was this idea of 
the Arabic world wanted to translate all of the ancient Greek texts to Arabic so that they had their own copies of it. So they would be constantly importing these texts. And similar to what we saw in Alexandria, they would then have scribes handy who would then translate these over. And that would then foster an academic community inside the House of Wisdom. Mm -hmm. And and the work at the House of Wisdom would actually impact engineering in the area. Uh, so anybody building anything in the area would come and learn more, and that would only exponentially grow the entire surrounding area. And the primary purpose of the library was either in the translation or the creation uh, inspired by all the creative minds at the time. So it was, a, it was a meeting place as well as it was a place to gather information. Um, I remember trying to find like what it looked like mm. and the direct translation of part of what it was named was mm. a house with a dome in one hallway, but then the other part was a house with many domes and many mm. hallways or something. So it was an interesting thought. Like Even the name didn't really describe it, and, and there's no real representation of what it actually looked like. It's, it's interesting, you you were mentioning how the, the house served multiple purposes. It was a library, but it was also a place of academic research and discussion. And it had that translation process where they were bringing things into Arabic, but they also acted as a sort of translation or translator service for ideas getting into the West. So the, my favorite example of this is that the Hindu decimal system, which is what we all use now for our numeric system. It's called the Hindu-Arabic numeric system something i did not know it was brought out of india essentially through the middle east and into the west then introduced through the house of wisdom essentially and now that is the numeric system that we use today that's crazy yeah absolutely fascinating so um, it was it was it it served an interesting translational role it wasn't just taking western ideas and bringing them into arabic translations but bringing something that's not even arabic bringing hindu ideas into their world and then bringing those into the West. Uh -huh. And not even like literary translations. It's, mm. it's math. Like that's such an important thing that everybody uses now. That's really neat. Mm -hmm. uh, what's not really neat uh, is it was eventually destroyed. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think the source I was looking at said it was February 12th, 1258. Okay, it was like very a very specific. specific day. They know. Yeah, for some reason. But it was destroyed by invading Mongols, unfortunately. Um, and something that I also did read was that the, the Tigris River turned black with all the ink that was being washed off of the parchment that oh, was wow. being thrown into the river. Extremely oh, that sad. sad. That I is know. very it was sad. Like literally like a, a direct representation of all the information being lost. Yeah. Yeah. So... On that thought, <laughs> those these I, I was happy to talk about these older libraries, though, because they teach us a lot about the world. They taught us about what the world was focused on at the time. You know, we saw the oldest library really focused on practical matters, politics, but even a little bit of divination going on up to the House of Wisdom, which is this embracing of Western ideas with Eastern ideas and advancing mathematics and theology and philosophy in interesting ways. A library is actually a pretty good lens into the cultural attitudes at the time, the zeitgeist of, of, a, of a given society. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's interesting just thinking about all of that in general and you're like each, each time period and how 
our I guess our information gathering is just up and down, up mm. and down constantly because there's always somebody who's more powerful, who's more war driven, who's just going to destroy it all. It right. seems like. <laughs> well, thankfully nowadays we've got our digital libraries. Oof. Everything's online. We've got our Wikipedia's and everything else. Everything's on Dropbox, and now we don't hopefully have to to lose everything. Oh, the robots <laughs> don't come and get us. <laughs> right. <laughs> So do you got anything else? That's all I got. Well, it's a quick episode. Uh, thank you guys for listening to Beyond the Board. If you uh, like what we did, why don't you subscribe? If you didn't already, we know you do. Uh, but also send us a review. We like reviews, and it also helps us get the word out. Also, tell your friend. <laughs> uh, you can email us at beyondtheboardpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to get in touch with us, we're also on Instagram at goingbtb for Beyond the Board. And we're also at whizbot.com games on instagram and we make games if you didn't know that you can find us on our home on the web at whizbotgames.com but also do yourself a favor and head on to your local library who knows what you might learn bing this podcast has been produced in association with the nerdalogs to find out more about the nerdalogs and their shows visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash nerdalogs thanks for listening